All right, this evening we are now in Acts 15, and um, we're going to be seeing a lot of fireworks. Uh, all of us are used to church. After a while, church is um, also full of people, and people end up disagreeing with each other, and we'll see some uh, more disagreeing in the early church. Uh, but before we started recording, David was sharing, we had a, a meta Bible study going on for a second. David was sharing about his uh, following along with Father Stephen DeYoung. He's a priest in the Antiochian Archdiocese who's been doing a lot of um, recordings, podcasts. He has something on ancient faith as well, right, David? I know he had stuff on a website. Yes, yes, he, yes, he does. And I'm still at, uh, when he was at, he started at uh, Charleston, West Virginia, he, he, he did his Sunday night Bible studies, and after starting in Deuteronomy, they started recording. And I've been working along with that, and uh, it's pretty much a, sometimes a word-by-word word study. They take an awful lot of time. But anyhow, and I've been with that for a long time, and it, it, we're in Isaiah right now, and we've gotten up to, uh, we're in Isaiah, Isaiah 25 and and uh, I was reading. Well, we were reading Isaiah 25. And he was talking, and this. Well, I'll just talk about Isaiah 25 because there's more references. Last time we were talking about Paul arguing with the Second Temple Jews, yeah. uh, essentially about uh, uh, you know the meaning, the meaning, the meaning of this, and 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 you know allowing the Gentiles to come in and all all that sort of thing. And in, in Isaiah 25, starting at verse 6, it says, Then the Lord of hosts shall do this to all the nations on the mountain. They shall drink in gladness. They shall drink wine. They shall anoint themselves with ointment on this mountain. And that's referring to Zion. It's referring to Jerusalem when it says mountain. Deliver all these things to the nations, for this is the counsel for all the nations. Death prevailed and swallowed them, but again God wiped away every tear from every face. He took away the disgrace of his people from all the earth, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Then it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, and that's referring to all the nations, including the Gentiles. Behold, this is our God, in whom we hoped and rejoiced exceedingly, and we shall be glad in his salvation. And it continues from there. I could continue reading for a while, but I, I think that gives the sense of it. I mean, we're not here to study Isaiah, but it just really struck me as we studied that. I thought, boy, that relates directly. I, I can I can hear Paul pointing. Of course, he didn't have the chapter and verse numbers, <laughs> but I can almost hear Paul, you know, pointing at 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 that reading from Isaiah and saying, you know, see, see it says right here that the Gentiles are to come in, that mm -hmm. the word comes first to you, the word goes to the Gentiles, which is what a lot of the argument was about. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Um, I also think it really underlines how Bible study begets Bible study. I remember when I was a teenager and starting to dig into scripture, <clears throat> how if you're reading Acts, or especially, I think I spent an inordinate amount of time in Romans, as any good Protestant probably should, um, <laughs> just trying to make heads or tails of it <clears throat> with my 
15 or 16 year old mind. And I, I definitely came to a point where I was just like, I don't think I understand what faith even means. <laughs> mm. um, cause just cause there, there's a lot of technical, you know, you, you have these kind of naive ideas and then scripture really allows you to sift through those things. If you do careful reading. And I remember just spending like hours just reading the first five chapters of Romans over and over and over again. And then realizing if I'm going to follow the thread of this argument, I actually need to look at some of the things that he's quoting from, because if I don't actually, and then I, I don't, if I don't know the story, this is why a lot of modern exegetes will talk about. If you don't know the story, the bigger story and the highlights of the history of Israel, you're going to, it's going to be hard, especially as we've noticed in the book of Acts. Um, why, what's the significance of certain things versus other? Why, why does Paul articulate certain ways that uh, it helps to have basic familiarity? So as you, at any point, uh, you, you've got to, because I've encountered this so much of feeling overwhelmed by the study of scripture, but it's kind of like anything. Like I'm overwhelmed by like small motor engine repair. This is maybe a bad metaphor because I just gave up on our lawnmower and just bought a push thing. Um, but if you actually get into it and start learning some things, then it just gets easier. And it just, it's like working out. You, you just got to do it. Um, not that I take my own advice all the time, but yeah. that is, uh, that is, this is the way to quote. If I may, if I, if I may Father, this is actually, this is actually my third time. Uh, uh, I don't, boy, many, many years ago, decades ago, uh, I did a, uh, study and, and then, uh, uh, boy, 20 years ago, uh, I did, uh, I actually did, uh, uh, the Swanee seminary course uh -huh. in New Testament. In Old and New Testament studies, that took a couple of years uh, uh, to go through that. And this is my third time to study of the Bible. And, and I will, I, I, I mention this because what surprises me every time after going through the Old Testament, I always come out of my study of the Testament with a much better understanding of the New Testament than I had before. Yep. It's just incredible how a deep study of the Old Testament just reveals so much about what's going on in the New Testament because it gives you the context. You know, there are so much of what they're talking about, like you, you, you were saying, so much of what they're talking about. It's actually referring to things from, you know, from, from the literature and from the tradition that was existing at the time, which was yeah. what we call the Old Testament. This is also plug that it does help you have to be discerning, but it does help to have, <coughs> excuse me, um, to go out and spend a little bit of money on certain books and be up to date on certain trends in biblical and like kind of open your ears to broader things because you will be able to find good stuff in different places. You know, I'm kind of, I, I really hold by the, uh, the saying of the fathers to take the gold from the Egyptians when you need to. Uh, as in you take all the good stuff and you, you know, leave the dross behind. Um, 
this is how they would interpret the use of Greek philosophy uh, and, and basically um, defend it by saying, well, the Israelites took all the gold from Egypt to build the temple, etc. So we can take some gold from the Greeks. Um, there is, um, I was just listening to a podcast the other day. This is a very, uh, Erica and David, maybe Reed, you will know who this is too. Scott Hahn. Yeah, Erica. What that name? Yeah. I he, went to Franciscan University, so yes, yes. I, I'm very familiar with him. <laughs> and you're a Presbyterian. So he's a yes. Presbyterian convert to the Roman Catholic Church. But he has a lot of popular level stuff. And some of it's okay. Some of it's better than others. And he knows what he's like. He knows that he's making popular stuff. And he, he has a PhD in New Testament studies and he has a podcast and he was talking with this fellow and they were talking about John the Baptist. They were talking about second temple Jewish stuff, but they're specifically talking about Qumran and Dead Sea Scrolls and how much light is shed on John the Baptist from that, those texts those texts weren't really known until what middle of the 20th century. And they weren't really even disseminated and analyzed and translated up until past 20 years. Yeah. So there's things there. And part of the shift uh, was also the way that this fellow was realizing as he, he read this stuff, how most of the time, what you would say, who is the Gentile um, gospel writer? Who's the gospel for the Gentiles? Luke. Luke. Yeah, And he says, you know what, the more that he's read this stuff and the themes that Luke has, the more he's convinced it's not necessarily that he's Gentile and the others is that he's keyed into specific things from Dead Sea Scrolls, like more contemporary Second Jewish Temple stuff that's being produced by the Qumran community, etc., that uh, sheds more light and keeps Luke together in ways that trying to do like Greco, I know there's all sorts of scholarship about like Greco-Roman stuff, like are the gospels like ancient biographies and you, you know, at some point you just want to, you know, fall asleep. Um, but within reason and discerning, there's a lot of good stuff out there that can really shed light um, and be helpful in studying scripture. Something that I would say the fathers would embrace because they themselves did this. Um, they studied languages, Jerome studied Hebrew um, they did what they needed to do because they had such a reverence for the sacred page uh, in a way would that we all have the same desire to study in the way that they do. So let's take all of that and David's uh, and look at Acts 15 and maybe the, this fourth or fifth time, David will glean even more and share it with us. All just right. when you, we, Father, I, if you'll excuse me, it's just when you get into other material, you've really got to use a lot of dis You really need guidance, I think, in doing that. Uh, I, I've got a, I've got another Bible study. I've got a, not a Bible study group, a book study group, uh, yep. religious. It's actually a Catholic book study group. We just finished John Frostman's How to Read a Bible and Still Be a Christian. <laughs> Without becoming, without becoming a revolutionary, <laughs> and it's and, and it's like John, and I've actually met Croston and and argued with him a few times, and I've read a lot of Croston over the years. He was very influential on me years ago, but I, it's just, you know, it looks good, and Croston's a good 
scholar. He really is. That's a different but, thing. <laughs> but you've got to be careful with it. Oh, yeah. Because he will eventually reveal himself, as he does in this book, finally, six pages before the end, that he has been talking about the Jesus of history. The right. historical Jesus. Quote, from a strictly historical, sociological, cultural view. Right. This is where this is where the cynic and critic in me comes out and says, "Really, you, yeah. you got there. Nobody else did." Yeah, I know. So our group at the end, we decided the name of the book really ought to be "How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Humanist." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, I that's just an example, of, though. I thought you really have to use discernment. I mean. Yes, and, and yes, I just want to be clear. I respect Crossman a lot, and I've learned a lot from him. But he's, yeah. he's, a, he's essentially a humanist, and he's trying to justify his position and still be able to go to church. Right. Good point, David. So okay. who would like to start Acts 15? Not me. I can. Go, please, Erica. Will you please read... Sorry, I'm going fast. Two, one through 11. <clears throat> okay. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, reporting the conversion of the Gentiles, and they gave great joy to all the brethren. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter rose and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, but clean, cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you make trial of God by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So we ended uh, 14 with Paul and Barnabas coming back from their first journey, and they're in Antioch. They're sharing their experiences of preaching amongst the Gentiles, but also among the synagogues and the places that they'd been, probably relating all of the harrowing experiences they had, etc. <clears throat> and uh, there seems to be something about uh, Jerusalem and we notice this even from the beginning of reading the book of Acts, um, that there, the book of Acts gives us a very clear uh, 
so well a clear picture that things are murky <laughs> what i mean by that is clear that we have a very well we seem to have a very clear idea that there's christianity and judaism and at this time things are still in coate it hasn't really uh, settled out exactly what the differences are going to be. Uh, they're still arguing about how to interpret scripture. Um, you still have the apostles who are going to the temple early on in the book of Acts. Uh, and we have even here um, that there are believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So we have legitimate Pharisaical Christians here Um so the, things are a little murky. And of course, uh, because of this, there's debate. Um, something about uh, the life of the church, there's always when humans are involved, which is all of our experience, um, there's always going to be um, debate. There's going to be a need to articulate things. And when Christianity or the early disciples are um, things are settling this as what the men who come from Judea teaching has not been settled. <clears throat> what is the relationship that Christianity is going to have with circumcision and the custom of the law? Why is circumcision such a big deal? Why, why this issue? as opposed to offering sacrifices in the temple, not going to the temple, uh, keeping the Sabbath. Why, why this issue? I don't, I kind of have an answer in mind, but I'm open to anybody else. I mean, I've wondered if it's, uh, I mean, that someone who was becoming a proselyte, becoming a Jew, a man certainly would have, had to be circumcised. So, you know, it's a fairly dramatic thing to do. And, uh, yes. And, you know, I mean, it was, I mean, you have the covenant with Abraham, right? If you were not yep. circumcised, you were excluded. And so, it, certainly, if you were going to become a Jew, you had to be circumcised. And at, to that time, that was a sim that is one of the symbols of being a part of the people, right? A very right. visible, uh, especially if you're in the Greco-Roman baths, etc. Which is why there's all the debate that happens in Second Temple Judaism uh, about this that the Jews were starting to not circumcise because they wanted to fit in. Um, this becomes just like the Book of Daniel, right? Like fasting that they weren't supposed to eat certain foods. This becomes uh, they're supposed to keep certain holy days this becomes one of those signs. Uh, it is the kind, I mean, I think it's fair to say it's kind of the baptism uh, initiation, as it were, for an adult in, into uh, Israel, for a child. If you have a male child, you're supposed to circumcise them. So this, of course, um, this is going to bring a debate. What do you all think um, about? So obviously they realize, and I think this is um, witness to, that there's something about Jerusalem. There's something about a kind of, uh, I don't want to say central authority, but kind of like home base, as it were. Uh, 
that at Jerusalem, there's the apostles and elders and that Paul and Barnabas feel the need. Um, you don't have Paul and Barnabas having, have decided that they're going to build their own church on the freeway and forget about everybody else uh, of the churches. Um, you have uh, a very clear understanding of like, okay, there's a lot of debate. So we need to take it to uh, the center of things and figure this out. So that uh, they go to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders. I also think it's important that they are um, going to Jerusalem. Uh, this is kind of the center of everything in the history, as David read at the very beginning from Isaiah 25, salvation yeah. flows from Zion. So I also think it's interesting that they're on their way to sort this thing out and they don't have any problem with propagating their side of things. <laughs> as they go through Phoenicia and Samaria, they got no problem saying, guess what? We converted a bunch of Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and all the folks were joyful about it. Yep. So, is there? Does anyone else find it fascinating that there's a party of Pharisees, that there's Christians who identify themselves as part of the part belong, uh, that they they have a pedigree, as it were, from coming from the Pharisees, that they need to be like the folks who are believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Um, that still is like a tagline for them. There's something about coming from that background. Ah. Yeah, I find it. I, yeah, I find, I, find it, I find it fascinating. Uh, uh, it fits right in with everything I've learned, been, been learning over the years that, that uh, and, and getting over this idea that I got from my early Protestant background that uh, uh, there was Judaism, and then Jesus came, and there was a brand new religion, and we shed Judaism. <laughs> it went forward, and right? Like no, it's no, no, no. That's not what it is. That's, uh, uh, what, what, you know, I like to say controversial things, and 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 and, and one of the controversial things they like to say is, "This is a Jewish religion." I, it's yeah. it's. It, it is it is so deeply Jewish, and uh, right liturgy. Uh, I, I've I've been learning, you know, and and, uh, uh, and 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 at least in orthodoxy and, and and the design of the church and its relation to the temple and so on and so forth. So yeah, I, it, uh, it it it's this. Uh, I think it's fascinating. Yes, and it's also very believable to me makes a lot of sense to me and it makes it easier for me to imagine this time right where you've got because <clears throat> it actually the, seems like humans are involved here <laughs> yeah exactly and, and you've got pharisees and i bet you too sadducees as well as you know as well as you know you know uh uh, 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 the apostles and, and so on and so forth and everybody's trying to work what in the world on you know, uh, clearly some major event happened. So what do we do with it? And I'm sure there's a lot of people who go, well, you just disregard it. Well, obviously there was. It's in the Bible. A lot of people, you just disregard it and ignore it. And go on. Never happened. 
You know, it was all a fake. And other people thinking, well, something to it. Yeah, but what is it? And yeah, so so, so it, it all it all makes sense to me that, that there's the, the, the people struggling and trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I <clears throat> I find it just like the Pharisees we encounter in the gospel. There is a and I don't see this as necessarily a bad thing, but there is, there, there is a desire to keep the law of Moses and to keep it in a particular way. And it's really important. And I don't think that the apostles would disagree with them. They would just say that the way that you keep the law of Moses uh, is something different than what the Pharisees at this point would have thought uh, that meant. Um. I also think it's important uh, when we look at verse six that <clears throat> the early church is not just uh, a kind of monarchical church where you just have the apostles kind of on 12 thrones, even though we use that kind of language. We even used it in the Chaparian tonight for Anthemus uh, about ascending the throne of the apostles. <clears throat> you have the apostles and the elders. So you have the leadership of the church. And they have to come together to consider this matter. Uh, there's much in uh, the canonical literature of the church uh, that refers to this as like one of the first kind of ecumenical councils, not in the way that we would think ecumenical councils, but a kind of synodal type meeting where you have uh, different, um, I don't like the word rank, um, orders, as it were, within the church. Those are set aside for different responsibilities. I'll say that. Apostles, elders, um, and you have Barnabas uh, and Paul, who are kind of outliers here, but they're here to discuss. Uh, and obviously, there's a hearty debate. Excuse me. I probably need more coffee, but not this late at night. Um, <clears throat> that was a failing. Yeah. Uh, what do you all make of Peter's um, argument here? I'm kind of thrown, to be honest. I've always had in my head, Peter was for the Jews and Paul is for the apostles. And you have here in verse well, seven, does, brethren, you know does, that in the early days, God made choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Well, of course, I mean, doesn't the apostle Paul maybe in Galatians, talk about that he and Peter had agreed that he should go to the Gentiles and Peter should go to the Jews. So, I mean, there is a reason for sort of having that distinction in mind or division yeah. of labor. Good. I'm not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the jury's out on that still. That doesn't prove it. But, um, hey, but when you're in, in agreement with the apostles, you're in good company at least. That's right. Um, <clears throat> but I do find it, I mean, we did already in the book of Acts, Peter had, was chosen, he had the vision, and he needed to see the testimony of the Holy Spirit, right? As he says in 8 and 9. Um, and I think it's key here that in his argument, God who knows the heart bore witness to them. Do you already kind of have this outer and inner thing going on? The, the Pharisees seem to want... Um, and I don't think this is necessarily that they have like this inner outer, like they could say, like you could keep the law of Moses and be an infidel inside your heart. 
but that the mm -hmm. emphasis is kind of like the completion of these particular things like circumcision, this symbolic act has to be done in order for them to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And Peter in verse eight is saying, you know, God who knows the heart bore witness to them that the Holy Spirit uh, is the one uh, who showed and that it cleansed their heart. The Holy Spirit cleansed their heart by faith. So the experience that he had, what he has seen by the power of the Holy Spirit, he then juxtaposes that against the party of the Pharisees or the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. And he says, um, why do you make a trial of God by putting a yoke like upon the neck of the disciples? What do you think of this language, trial of God and putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples? Like a burden that's too heavy? Well, I think it's interesting that he says it's a yoke that neither uh, our fathers nor we were able to bear. And this reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said. We read a couple weeks back uh, where he preached, I think, in the synagogue and was saying, um, you know, in Christ you can be freed from all the things that you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Right. So he, he seems not only to have a sense of the inadequacy of the law, but a sense that all of his listeners have a sense of that inadequacy as well. Right. And in fact, this argument, uh, 8, 9, 10, and especially 11, but we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Sounds very Pauline to me. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you have the experience of the inclusion of the Gentiles, um, and this argument about not putting uh, <laughs> a yoke that seems to uh, the keeping of the law in the way that this, this group of believers wants to is not actually life-giving. It's but the grace of our Lord Jesus that is what is ultimately life-giving, which we, I don't think it was last time, I think it was the time before last, kind of did a mini synopsis of Romans or how Paul treats the law there in, Rome, in the book to the Romans. These verses always make me nervous. How come? I've been confronted with them on on more than one street corner. Uh, and really? These are the, oh, these are the verses that he used for the argument. You know, you'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus as, as they will. Now just say this prayer and it's done. Uh... Okay. <laughs> this that, is, this. But that's not what happened. What what happened? They were baptized. It wasn't. <laughs> yeah, but you understand, I'm saying, Father, these these oh, verses out of context are favorite verses for for street evangelists. You know, people saving people right there and see you. And now you're saved forever, and everything's done. You don't have to do anything else. You know, and that's that's they make well, me nervous. Lord have mercy. Of course. Well, we know the whole testament. But remember, that's coming. That's coming from a guy. That's coming from a guy who just talked about reading the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. So mm -hmm. obviously, I've got a I've got a viewpoint here that's that there's a little bit more to it than just taking four verses out of context. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I know an understanding that I had had at some point as an evangelical, and I think it's a fairly common one, is that the purpose of the law was to show us that we could not keep the law 
so that we would come to God by faith instead. Right. Right. And uh, I'm not at all sure that that's what he's trying to say here. <laughs> Flesh it out for us, Reed. What do you think he's trying to say? Well, again, I always think of St. Irenaeus talking about the law and, you know, as an evangelical, what I understood was the law is the wrong kind of thing to save us. Grace through faith is the right thing. As though they were opposites, they were different in category. Right. The way St. Irenaeus, I've probably said this before, but St. Irenaeus explains the law was like a torch in the night. It's a great blessing to have a torch and to have some light in the darkness. But the coming of Christ and the gospel was like the sun rising. <clears throat> and, you know, once the sun rises, the, the torch becomes a burden. You throw it away because, you know, now it's just an, ex, uh, an extra weight that's not helping you at all. And so the point was not that the law was the wrong kind of thing. It's that it was the right kind of thing, but not nearly enough of it. Right. I would say law um, yeah. is grace. Yeah. Right. It is a light, but it's not the light. And it, you know, teaches us to love the light. Right. That's what I would say. All, all of the old Testament, all the law, circumcision, all those things are grace. Mm -hmm. They, with the fulfillment in the coming in the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, some of those things, as you said, a, a torch, but I, I would even use just the language of Paul of they're a pedagogue. They're, they're a pedagogue. Right. They, mm -hmm. They're a tutor that bring us to faith in Christ. Um, mm -hmm. And this is, I think, where, where it gets, starts getting murky, too, and where you get really funny. I remember encountering this interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, is where the law, and I'm going to pick on Lutherans here, uh, <clears throat> where the law becomes this kind of like moral thing. And the certain, so, and I've encountered this, maybe Reed, you've encountered this, or David in reading, um, uh, and maybe Erica, you've heard this from the pulpit, even in Presbyterian circles, I don't know. Um, you have this law gospel thing going on, and the law is, you broke a rule, and therefore you need grace in order to, and so the whole Sermon on the Mount is basically Christ preaching perfection, and you and I both know we can't actually live the Sermon on the Mount. So all of the Sermon on the Mount is basically a big beat down about how much we can't actually be a part of the kingdom so that we can accept God, like Jesus, as the one who will actually be able to do that because we can't do it. Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, we are um, a pile of, uh, I can't remember exactly the terminology I heard a lot. No but, covered uh, poop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, grace is the white blanket that is like covered, you know, uh, placed upon it to cover it up. Uh, yes. Yeah. No. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. the the issue with this is, I would say, and I think the fathers of the church, and you see this, I think, um, which is, I would even take this into, and we're maybe getting a little bit too deep here, but the logos theology that is. Uh, through the Cappadocians uh, up into Maximus the Confessor, you can see in Dionysius even, the law represents, uh, is a kind of natural law in the world. And there's a specific revelation given to Israel to bring it to a certain understanding of God to prepare it. That's why Israel was chosen. 
that's why <clears throat> I'll use this other metaphor that I'm also kind of writing a chapter right now for the uh, OCA catechism for this year about like the, the Old Testament's a womb in which you get all the metaphors and the ways to understand who Jesus Christ is. That's why you have the priesthood, the, you know, uh, kings, uh, you know, all of that. These are all ways to train our minds and hearts and understand for Israel, of course, primarily, and then us through reading the scripture uh, and their experiences. Um, but all of this is to bring us to the feet of our Lord because it is his body, as we've read in the sermons of the apostles in, here in the book of Acts, it's his incorrupt body that gives us life because he trampled down death by death. That's why we have resurrection and life. It's not because of, as Reed said, like you have law that just brings death. And then you have this thing called grace through faith that almost becomes this like dialectical thing that it's not about what you do. It's about what you believe that's really not Jewish. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, and that's why the fathers will say like, to follow Jesus Christ. I mean, I also said, this is just straight up scripture, but because the fathers are extension of scripture. Oh. I've uh, <laughs> <laughs> We just had someone show up at the door. Uh Oh, Jehovah's witnesses. <laughs> oh, hi. Actually, more orthodox folks. Oh, nice. <laughs> the citizens, uh, it's Max <clears throat> bringing a candle over. Oh, they were Max. just here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, but there, it's not like grace and faith is this thing that's opposite of the law. But in order to follow Jesus Christ, you obey the commandments. Right. You do. Right. You're supposed to live the Sermon on the Mount. Like, if you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's scripture. And I think you have to do some serious somersaults and weird hermeneutics to get around this, that like we are bound to obey the law of God. And we can discern aspects of that within the Old Testament, but we get a clear vision of it in Jesus Christ. So law is, is grace, just like creation is grace all the way down. It's not... Um, that's why Paul says that the law existed for a reason. And it, it, it just couldn't bring life in the way that Christ brings life. So, well, and I often, I hope that's illuminating and not murky. (laughs) No, I think that makes perfect sense. And I, you know, I, I've long thought that God has built this into just the way we raise children. (laughs) Right. That, you know, when you, when your children are young, you say, you do not cross the street unless you hold my hand. And this is like the law of Moses. It's a very useful instruction. It helps keep children alive. But if by the time your child is hit, you know, 12 or 15 or 18, he still feels like he needs to hold your hand before he crosses the street, you feel like, no, 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 we, we, we've, we've kind of missed the point here somewhere. And, you know, the, the, the child who has obeyed his parents' commands from early on grows into understanding, you know, life and how you live wisely, um, you know, that, that richer thing that these very concrete laws are just sort of basic applications of adapted to the age of the child. Right. And so the same thing here, it's like, you know, the law of Moses was a wonderful thing, but at some point, the picture of the pedagogue, you, you outgrow this 
and begin to grow up into the fullness of grace and the knowledge of God. But so I'll push back a little bit. I don't think you ever outgrow it as much as you're all it's he, the old Testament is always our tutor in a way to lead us to the, the way that language that Paul uses in Galatians there to lead us to Christ. Right. I don't think you would disagree with that, but it's not a ladder that, that we then kick away from us. Right. <laughs> it's something right. it, 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 this is where metaphors start to fall apart. Right. Like the metaphor works. And then in another way you say like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. That's, I don't mean that. Um, so I, I think uh, this redoubles or underlines David's point of reading Old Testament is very helpful because <laughs> I think you, you get saved from a lot of these mistakes if you actually mm -hmm. read deeply in the Old Testament. If I could uh, strain that metaphor just a little bit more. Uh-oh, go for it. There, there's, there, there's a reason that you have your kids hold, hold your hand crossing the street. You know, and the reason is that you know how to look out for traffic. And when your kids get older, they become aware of the need to look out for traffic, and they can look out for traffic by themselves. In other words, there's there's reasons there's reason behind the rule, if right. you, <laughs> if, if you will. Okay, and it's coming to an understanding of those reasons, and this will take me back to Jesus, who's the reason behind the rule, if 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 you if if you will. He's the reason also behind takes, reason. Huh? He's the reason behind reason. Yeah, he's the reason behind reason. It also takes me back to the criticism of the Pharisees. Because mm -hmm. the Pharisees are just worried about, about everybody holding on to each other. You know, the rule is everybody hold on to each other when you cross the street without looking at what the meaning of that is and where that comes from and what the purpose is and what God's trying to teach through the law. If you, if you will. Right. And if anybody could take this metaphor any further, then we need to write a book. <laughs> well, I mean, I really think that's what our Lord does in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, I haven't yes. come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Yes. And yeah. so, you know, he does take the law of Moses and he begins to reinterpret <clears throat> it maturely, if you will. But, you know, it said, do not commit murder. But the fullness of that is, you know, love your enemy right you know, so i'm going to push this metaphor to the breaking point because uh have you all read um so this is a good this is not john dominic cross and this is uh, something that i would say you should read. <laughs> pope, john. Benedict, pope benedict aka 